Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. In today's program, we feature Energy Secretary Granholm, who had an embarrassing moment on the road in her EV car photo op when Secretary Granholm couldn't find an available charging station to charge her EV vehicle. And now for the second time, well, there's a federal judge who has ruled that the Obama initiative called DACA, it's been ruled as unconstitutional. Additionally, New Mexico's governor was rebuked uh, recently for not reading the United States Constitution uh, by a different federal judge uh, when the governor attempted to take firearms away from the citizens of New Mexico. And finally, the California Assembly voted to reject 18-wheelers going down California's freeways and other state roadways while using driverless technology. All of this and the bigger picture on today's edition of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired. Well, jumping into our first piece here, which we entitled Charging Challenges, Biden's Energy Secretary, that's Miss Granholm, uh, she planned a four-day EV trip this summer through the Southeast, and she ran into charging woes for her caravan of three EV cars or EV electronic vehicles. Uh, she's the Department of Energy Secretary, and again, her name is Jennifer Granholm, and uh, her summer road trip, it seems, was cut short. Uh, let's take a listen to this piece from Fox Business, September 11th, 2023. This is cut number one. All right, get a load of this one. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm's electric vehicle road trip running into trouble while trying to tout the administration's green push. Fox Business's Grady Trimble joins us live. So, Grady, this got so bad that they had to call the police. Is that right? <laughs> that is right, Brian. A staffer apparently tried to hold the only available electric vehicle charger for the energy secretary by parking a gas-powered vehicle in the spot. That is according to NPR. A couple with a baby wanted to use the same charger, so the reporter who was tagging along on the trip says the young family called the cops on the staffer. The staffer wasn't breaking any laws, though, so nothing came of that call to police. But Secretary Granholm's road trip from North Carolina to Tennessee back in June highlights just how difficult it is to find electric vehicle charging stations and to drive EVs long distance. This reporting from NPR is in stark contrast to Granholm's own enthusiastic account of the trip on social media. We'll be taking electric vehicles on this road trip, and I'm very excited to point out all of the investments that are happening. 
Ford CEO Jim Farley also recently took a road trip in an F-150 Lightning, not aware of any calls to the police, but we do know that he said he ran into some of the same challenges finding charging stations for the vehicle. So here's the issue. Charging stations are not sufficient. So if you want to take a lengthy trip across the United States, in this case, it was from uh, the Carolinas to Tennessee. The uh, Secretary of Energy had a difficult time. Now, I believe in choices, and this is not a story that we're covering in order to bash electric vehicles uh, wholesale and to say that all electrical vehicles are bad and you shouldn't get them. So don't feel bad. Please don't uh, switch away if uh, you're listening to this program and it's the first time you're listening. What we're saying here is if you own an electric vehicle, you're probably discovering that there's some limitations to the use of these vehicles as the Secretary of Energy uh, discovered recently. Uh, for example, Americans are learning that EVs are not well suited for long distance traveling or driving, at least at not this point in time, because the infrastructure cannot support it. Uh, specifically, if you're, if, if there are not millions of charging stations uh, throughout the United States of America, so that shortage of uh, charging stations uh, is a concern. Uh, certainly, there are uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of gas stations all over the United States. So. There's really no comparison. And given this reality, many Americans are discovering that EV cars are best suited for your shorter local commutes to work or the grocery store uh, within a certainly within a, within the range of the uh, the vehicle itself, uh, so that you can return home and you can uh, charge the car overnight for a, a trip the next day. So it, what's turning out is that people are. Uh, coming to the conclusion that EV cars uh, seem to be a viable option for a second vehicle uh, if a family frequently takes uh, long trips uh, across the country. Uh, of course, a gas vehicle, at least in this point in time, uh, is preferable. Also, the Energy Secretary, uh, Jennifer uh, Granholm, uh, again, she's pushing the EV industry now, at this point, we're going to have to throw a red flag on the field. Yep, yep, there it is. There's a red flag right there on the field. And the point is that the United States government has never been in the position, it's certainly not in the position that uh, it exists in order to push certain industries and in order to get rid of other industries. But we've seen this trend in the last decade or even 15 or 20 years with the increasing fanaticism of the environmentalist, uh, the narrative that you're hearing that uh, we need to embrace the Green New Deal, coal bad, petroleum certainly bad, and uh, the energy created by uh, solar panels, good. Energy created by uh, wind farms, good. And cars that are powered through batteries, lithium batteries, EV cars, uh, good. So 
This is a sharp contrast to what the founding fathers intended the federal government to be. Really, what they did was they set up a more laissez-faire system where the government was designed uh, in order to create a opportunity base so that people could invent things and that people could flourish if their inventions and their products and their services uh, were well-received in society. We're shifting now to a more fascist-based government where this government, this administration in particular, but starting with Obama, and we've talked about this in in uh, past uh, programs. Uh, you remember the uh, Solyndra debacle when Obama touted the um, company Solyndra, which, uh, produced, uh, which produced your uh, solar panels, uh, went completely bankrupt within a few years after the U.S. government pumped uh, hundreds of millions into that company uh, through government loans. And yes, that was all the taxpayers footing that bill and losing that investment. Well, here we have government fascism uh, pushing the EV industry. It's losing money, but the government is pushing it and financing it uh, in terms of the big three automakers. So this is a real concern, uh, and many are saying that the Green New Deal is turning out to be the Green New Steel because the government is the one that is financing and propping up this industry, but people are not really ready to embrace it, and the infrastructure, as we've been pointing out, can't even embrace it. Uh, So the story we heard underscores this problem. There aren't sufficient charging stations for cross-country road trips using EV cars And as we mentioned, it's embarrassing. The energy secretary, Jennifer Grenholm, her staff couldn't even put together a road trip for her to travel from the Carolinas to Tennessee without uh, having a problem and uh, without having, they tried to reserve a a stall to charge and, uh, you know, family with a a child kicked them out and called the police on them. So that didn't uh, really turn out very well in terms of optics. You know, I hired an electrician a year or so ago to come to my house, and I asked him, what, what do you think about uh, electronic vehicles? And he said, well, they're fine. He said, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they work. The problem is not so much the cars. The problem is the available electricity. He said, even if uh, you put in these charging stations in, in all of the cars in, for example, the neighborhood, and I happen to live in a fairly new neighborhood, he said the grid would have to be upgraded because there's not enough electricity available currently being supplied. So there's going to be a huge investment required on the grid side from the local power company. Of course, everybody's electric rates will go up. Why is this a good idea? In conclusion, we have to ask, replacing gas cars with EV cars, is it really a good idea to do this en masse uh, in terms of the federal government is trying to replace half of the cars and get rid of half of the uh, gas cars on the road currently and and, uh, have electric cars? Well, if you do this, you're going to create a society where more and more vehicles Uh, rely on electricity. And it's going to move us towards an infrastructure with a single point of failure. You know, if the grid goes down, not only will your house not work 
all of your electrical appliances unless you have gas, but the cars won't work either. So I can see this single point of failure really becoming a matter of national security. So we're going to continue to track this story and, and see how this uh, pans out. Uh, finally, in a follow-up story town hall, this is September 13, 2023, uh, Pete Buttigieg, well, he launched a $100 million taxpayer effort. Uh, after having issues with his electric minivan. So uh, Mr. Buttigieg of the Transportation Department, uh, he had problems, uh, with, and he's the Transportation Secretary. Uh, he admitted he faced several issues with charging of his electric vehicle at unreliable charging stations. But nevertheless, uh, he's going to drop $100 million in taxpayer money in order to promote EV vehicles. Well, moving on to the next piece, there's a federal judge who, again, has ruled against the DACA program and said that it is illegal. Let's take a listen to this piece. It's a U.S. district judge in Texas who ruled against the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program and ruled that it's unlawful. This is NBC News, September 13, 2023. Let's take a listen to cut number two. And now to some breaking news out of Texas. A U.S. district judge there has ruled again that the DACA program is unlawful. That's a program that protects hundreds of thousands of undocumented people known as dreamers from deportation and allows them to work legally in the United States. The judge declared DACA unlawful back in 2021 as well. So the Biden administration submitted legal regulation to answer his concerns. But today he ruled that the regulation was not enough. Now, the ruling did not give an end date to the program yet. Current dreamers will be able to keep and renew their status, but no new applications will be accepted. The Biden administration is expected to appeal that decision, and it could end up in the Supreme Court. So this decision may end up in the Supreme Court, but what you have here is a struggle between the executive and the legislative branches of the federal government. And you remember there are three branches. Uh, there's the executive, which is the White House, the legislative, which is Congress, made up of the Senate, and the House of Representatives. And then there is the judiciary branch of the government. And you have checks and balances, at least you're supposed to have checks and balances, between these three different branches. Well, here's another case of executive overreach. The Obama administration and the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, it was ruled as unlawful. Basically, Obama overstepped because it was supposed to be an action of Congress in order to approve a, such an action for the uh, so-called dreamers, uh, those who were undocumented and living in the United States in order to uh, let them remain. But uh, Obama just, you know, remember, he famously said, I have a phone and I have a pen. Well, he used his pen to basically go around the legislative process. He went around Congress. He ignored the elected congressman. 
in the House of Representatives. He ignored the senators, and he just signed this as an executive order and basically ruled by tyrannical fiat. So the judge has correctly ruled for the second time that DACA is an illegal program. Again, a case of executive branch overreach. The merits of the DACA program, of course, we were talking about illegal aliens in the U.S. and can they remain? Well, many of these were working. Many are paying taxes. Others are in school and college. So we're not talking about the idea or the merits. Uh, there are some merits and there are some important arguments. And the important part is, you know, have it go through Congress, have those things discussed, ha have the issues discussed and do it in an open forum on the record in Congress so that uh, the congressional process can uh, uh, work out its uh, proper process moving from committee to committee and from the House and then to the Senate and maybe back from the Senate to the House, but do it in an open manner in the sunlight so that American citizens can weigh in. None of that happened in this case. So uh, we're going to continue to track this story also, but it, as they mentioned, it may go all the way up to the Supreme Court for a final decision. But at this point in time, it's been uh, called illegal for the second time. Those that are here will remain, but it will not be something that's available from this point going forward for any new applicants into the DACA program. Well, Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience both in the United States and internationally. And as we mentioned a few programs ago, we passed the 3,000 program download mark. Yeah, and that's an important mark. Thank you. You made it possible. Thank you, all of you. We understand you could choose to do other things with your time, and we honor your commitment to free speech, American values that still make us proud to be living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, some of you have been wondering, why did we start Narrative Wars? And again, I was a professor of communication studies for 10 years at three different universities. I'm a person of faith, and the purpose of Narrative Wars is to confront the mainstream media madness by exposing the lies and the gaslighting that permeates the legacy media. Well, this week we're going to debut a second installment of Narrative Wars. We're going to roll out something new, and it's going to feature a deeper dive into topics that affect all Americans. But these topics are not necessarily discussed in the weekly news cycle, but these are topics that are very hotly discussed in the academic journals and on universities campuses on a daily basis. Well, being a university professor for 10 years, these topics are close to my heart, but they're also topics that are very important because they are affecting all of society, even though we may not be aware of it. 
and we may not understand or be aware of the terminology which is affecting all of our major institutions, primarily the educational institution, uh, which is affecting the new generation coming up. So I'll be putting on my university professor skills back to work as we move forward to unmask the origins and effects of postmodern ideology and discover that the foundation of so much of the woke culture wars which we're experiencing right now, well, it comes directly from the university campus through ideological premises such as postmodernism. So this coming Thursday, that is what we're going to be featuring. And we'll see, it, it probably will not go as long of a format as this current Tuesday installment of Narrative Wars goes. It'll probably be shorter, maybe only half as long. But the point is, it's going to be packed with information that's very important. And if you know someone in college, if you have a student in college, in your family, a, or a relative, a nephew, a grandson, uh, someone in your family, or you know someone who is looking to go to college uh, there in their high school years still, this information will be indispensable. It will be very important. And I hope that it will also guide in terms of choosing a university to attend. So again, that's going to be this Thursday on Narrative Wars. We'll release that early Thursday morning. Finally, a big shout out to those listeners who are now following us on Getter and X, formerly known as Twitter. And I continue to enjoy receiving your feedback, reading some of those statements on the air. Again, if you're following us on Getter and X, formerly known as Twitter, just go to at Jeffrey K. Lyons. That's at Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you'll find us there. For more information, visit our website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. And also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate, follow, and send our podcast link to two to three like-minded friends. That's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Well, moving on to our next piece, uh, the New Mexico governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, well, she was handed a legal defeat uh, this last Wednesday after a federal judge issued a temporary restraining order against her controversial 30-day conceal and open carry ban in the state of New Mexico. Let's take a listen to this piece uh, from Fox News. This is September 14th, 2023. A Democrat facing major blowback over her gun grab. A federal judge issuing a temporary restraining order gutting key parts of New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's 30-day ban on carrying firearms in public places. And this is just the beginning of her headache. The state's Democrat attorney general said he's going to refuse to represent her office in the cases, citing his oath to the Constitution. Ow. And the sheriff, who oversees the county where she wants the gun ban, flat out says he's not going to enforce it. The temporary ban challenges the foundations of our Constitution, but most importantly, it is unconstitutional. My oath was to protect the Constitution 
and that is what I will do. This order will not do anything to curb gun violence other than punish law-abiding citizens from their constitutional right to self-defense. I have a fact for you. Criminals do not follow the law or a public health order. But it looks like the liberal governor doesn't care what her critics say. My question to law enforcement is where are you? It's not for police to tell me what's constitutional or not. You've got to be kidding. It's not for the police to tell me what's constitutional or not. Well, that's the kind of rhetoric which comes from tyrants. That is tyranny 101. So just, she's saying just ignore the Constitution of the United States of America. This is what the governor of New Mexico is saying. Ignore the Constitution of the United States of America, says New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, Democrat. Ignore it because I'm more important. My voice is more important than the Constitution of the United States of America. My voice is more important than the hundreds of thousands of Americans that have died all across the history of the United States of America, starting with the War of Independence against England. No, my voice is more important. You need to listen to me. Just forget history. Oh, that's right. They're not teaching history anymore in the public schools. So this is uh, the Democrat New Mexican governor. And uh, well, again, we have executive overreach. That's what is, that is what is taking place. Executive overreach. And we're just going to have to call it right here. Once again, uh, this is twice in one program, but this is, I mean, really folks. Yeah, oh, there it is. Yeah, there's a flag on the field right there. And we, we're just going to have to call that one out because, yes, this is tyranny. Uh, this is executive overreach. And we can't ignore the Constitution of the United States and just do whatever we feel like. And that is uh, really uh, sufficient grounds for impeachment. Just, you know. Get her out of office. The attorney general, who's a Democrat, won't even back her up. Uh, this is attorney general Raul Torres in New Mexico. And he says, quote, though I recognize my statutory obligation as New Mexico's chief legal officer to defend state officials, namely the governor, uh, when they're sued in their official capacity, my duty to uphold and defend the constitutional rights of every citizen uh, takes precedence. So he's saying that the, his duty to the citizens of New Mexico supersedes the whims of this out-of-control tyrant uh, governor of New Mexico. And uh, this is quite remarkable because this is a Democrat uh, attorney general, and I'm agreeing with him. Uh, continue, he continues to say, quote, simply put, I do not believe that the emergency order will have any meaningful impact on public safety. But more importantly, I do not believe it passes constitutional muster. And yes, that's what the attorney general is supposed to do. Uh, make sure that actions taken not 
not only uh, are in line with the Constitution of the State of New Mexico, but the Constitution of the United States of America. So uh, that is a good call uh, from the New Mexico Attorney General uh, Raul Torres. Good job. Yeah, good job, Attorney General Raul Torres. Okay, that's enough with you guys. Uh, yes, so let's continue. Uh, the White House and New Mexican governor. Well, they're both examples now, and we've seen that in today's program of, again, executive branch overreach. You know, just rule by executive order, rule by uh, emergency orders, rule by fiat. And that is really why we had revolt uh, so many years ago against England, because we had a tyrant that was ruling in the name of uh, King George across the pond in England. And that's uh, now we've got tyrants, uh, both in the White House, signing DACA orders and other executive orders uh, that uh, Congress really should be weighing in on. Uh, the White House was never designed to have that kind of power, and neither were governors of states to just throw away the Second Amendment and ban gun rights in uh, New Mexico. Uh, look, even CNN, this was on September 12th, they asked the governor of New Mexico, quote, do you think that you were on solid constitutional ground here? Uh, this was CNN, and they were challenging the Democrat governor of New Mexico uh, that's pretty bad. Put it another way, it's a rare day when I agree with the talking heads at left-wing Democrat mouthpiece CNN, but I did on September the 12th. It was, In other words, it was so egregious, so over-the-top, so wacky that even CNN had to reel that one in and say, no, uh, that's... Uh, that's <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh, you cannot just throw out the Constitution. Why? Because what's next is that the First Amendment will get thrown out and the government will shut down the news networks and the people at CNN will be out of a job. So they see the handwriting on the wall. You throw out one right in the Bill of Rights, uh, the Second Amendment, other amendments can certainly fall uh, right behind that. So they're concerned about a domino effect, and I understand that. It makes a lot of sense. Moving to our final piece in today's programming, driverless trucks, 18-wheelers without a human being behind the wheel. Who's driving these trucks? Uh, well, <clears throat> a computer program uh, is driving the trucks? Well, uh, yeah, it's been actually happening since 2016. Uh, there have been these vehicles on the road and they have been out there. People haven't been aware of it or thinking about it. It's been under the radar. There have been stories about this, but uh, the stories are kind of being buried right now. So we had to kind of dig around to find this one. This was NBC News back in April of 2022. Let's give a listen to this. Cut number four. Your car is good to go. 
Spend enough time around Phoenix, Arizona, and you'll spot cars and vans cruising without anyone behind the wheel. Arriving shortly. But semi-trucks? They're the new frontier in driverless vehicles being tested right now. How soon could it be before somebody looks up and doesn't see anybody in the driver's seat on one of these Good semis? Question. So we want to be fully self-driving within the next couple of years. Boris Softman is Waymo Via's head of engineering for trucking. How many millions of miles of testing have you guys done so far? Yeah, so on the car side, we've done uh, over 20 million miles of physical driving and then 20 billion miles in simulation. Is there a concern that humans are going to see no driver and freak out about a semi <laughs> on the road? Uh, always something we think about. Uh, we were worried about the same thing on the car side. So now for a little test drive. we do a test drive. And even today, while humans like Bob Kreps are still technically behind the wheel. Here we go. That acceleration that we're hearing, that's yeah. not Bob. That's, that's the truck. That's the truck. Yep. Now, I know you do this a lot, but do you still kind of get nervous? <laughs> I don't get nervous because Bob's here. I trust Bob <laughs> with my wife here. So, Okay, listen to that carefully. The person doing the story says, are you nervous when you're driving or you're a passenger in a driverless truck? So they're riding along in an 18-wheeler. And the person who is uh, being interviewed, he responds, no, I'm not very nervous because Bob is here. Well, Bob is a human being. Bob is behind the wheel. Uh, he's just not touching the wheel. He's not touching the controls. And the truck is driving itself uh, using computer programs and, of course, uh, satellite information. So he's saying, no, I'm not nervous. I'm not scared because... A human being is behind the wheel. Oh, interesting. So this wasn't a test drive with no human being behind the wheel. Bob was there. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess I'd feel okay if a human being was behind the wheel too. Uh, because if something went wrong, they could grab the controls. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about driverless 18 wheelers with nobody behind the wheel. Let's continue uh, with this piece. <laughs> uh, so I don't get nervous. Right now, Google's self-driving company Waymo Via and several others are using safety drivers like Bob to supervise what are basically big rig robots. And if you look closely, you can see he's not always touching the wheel. Instead, the semi can navigate by itself using a guidance system. 28 cameras and a whole slew of radar sensors that map the immediate area and can peer over a half a mile down the road. So they're using human beings to supervise the robot. They're putting someone in the, the driver's seat to not drive and to watch in case the robot screws up and is about to cause an accident. So... I don't know. There's a number of boxes here that, um, you know, I'm, I'm checking the, hmm, sounds kind of odd. I'm checking the, hmm, that sounds a little squirrely box. Well, should we adopt driverless trucks just because the technology may be safe? Well, it might be safe, but is that a reason to adopt it? So I'm just going to let that question float out there as we consider a couple of other things. Would Americans accept robot policemen if the technology was available? So I'm just upping the ante here, upping the game a bit. You know, if, if we're going to uh, accept 
vehicles as large as an 18-wheeler, are we going to accept robot policemen? And this was an idea that was really put out way back in 2004. Remember the movie I, Robot with Will Smith? And that was a futuristic movie projecting to the year 2035. We're in 2023 right now. So 2035, well, that's only 12 years ahead in the future. So, I mean, how much of this robot stuff will we accept as a society? And if you remember, the whole premise of the movie was that, yeah, people will accept this, but caveat in the movie, something goes very wrong with these robot policemen. So if you didn't see the movie, you'll have to go back and see the movie. I'm not going to give it away uh, and uh, throw out a spoiler alert. But sometimes uh, these futuristic movies, they have value in terms of asking questions and letting the public ponder something. And futurists will put out these questions uh, to get people thinking, you know, is this really where we want to be? Is this really where we want to go? Have we thought through all of the unforeseen circumstances that might occur? And we may be better off tapping the brakes and saying, no, I, I, mm, I don't think so. I don't think that's a good idea. Now, I actually interviewed a veteran uh, truck driver, professional uh, big rig driver. And I asked him, uh, well, I was at a rest stop with my family. And uh, there was an area there uh, next to the rev stop where the 18-wheelers could pull over and uh, the drivers could sleep if they needed to, or they could check their rigs. Uh, he happened to have the hood uh, open and he was uh, working on his rig. And I went up and I identified myself as a podcaster. I, I gave him my name and told him about the program. I said, hey, is it okay if I ask you a few questions? And he continued to work and we chatted. And he said that, um, again, he's been a driver for 17 years. And the reason he pulled over was that uh, he was following behind another big rig and a part of that person's uh, or that truck's uh, tire, one of the tires uh, blew up and there was something in the uh, road, uh, he wasn't able to swerve and avoid it. And and that piece flew up and hit his front bumper and a part of his front bum bumper was uh, actually damaged. Uh, the engine was okay, but there was something that uh, was uh, dragging on the, uh, the pavement on the road. And so he pulled over in order to take that off and uh, using his socket wrench uh, and loosening a couple bolts, he, he took uh, the piece off that was dragging on the road. But he said, if, if there was a robot driving the car, if it was being uh, navigated and driven by uh, a driverless technology, well, certainly they would not have been able to pull off at a, at a rest stop and take care of the issue and, and, uh, and take the piece of the, the bumper off uh, that was scraping the road, inspect the engine, make sure that the vehicle was okay. You can't expect a vehicle with no driver in it to stop, get out of the vehicle, 
uh, open up the hood, look, and examine. That's just not going to happen. Uh, he also mentioned a, a number of other things, and quickly uh, going down that list, he said that um, drivers have to rest. I, I believe it was every 10 hours by law. I knew there was a uh, requirement. Uh, I don't know if that changes from state to state, but uh, that's what he mentioned. And, and I said, well, that's that's important. And, you know, that makes the public feel safer. Uh, he said that driverless vehicles, uh, they're not necessarily going to stop and be able to do any maintenance if, uh, again, if there is no, no driver. And why is this important? Well, he said in an experienced driver, they can hear noises, they can feel vibrations on the vehicle, uh, either the, the vehicle in front where the driver is or the trailer behind. Uh, they can sense abnormalities, certain vibrations, which may indicate that a tire is going to blow or that uh, certain systems are, are not operating properly. And so just by experience, they can hear things. They, the steering may feel different. It may feel tighter, moving in a certain direction, uh, feeling vibrations. A robot is not going to be able to sense these and proactively pull over uh, or call in and say that, you know, I think we need some maintenance here. There's a, there's a situation uh, that uh, may be unsafe and we need to take care of it. Uh, secondly, he said that uh, driverless vehicles, they're not able to make moral decisions. They so what do you mean by that? He said, well, if for some reason brakes fail, for example, and uh, a truck is coming to an intersection or coming to a point where it would be, you know, hitting cars that are there with people in it, um, any uh, driver that is actually behind the wheel, well, they're going to avoid those cars. They're, they're going to make a choice to uh, ditch the 18-wheeler and go off to the side. And you, you see this all the time when you see uh, the traffic reports and, oh, there's a uh, an 18-wheeler that's off the road. Well, I never really thought of it before, but why are they off the road? Well, because something was going wrong. They weren't able to stop as quickly as they needed to. Uh, they would have hit a car with a human being in it. Uh, there's no contest if a 18 wheeler hits a stopped, you know, four wheel, you know, sedan, small passenger car. That car and the people in it, it's toast. So they're going to make the, the decision, a moral decision to the take the truck off the road. They're going to ditch it on the side of the road in order to save human lives. And so I said, well, thank you. I. I never even thought of that. Uh, my conclusion is that a machine cannot replace human experience. Uh, it can't uh, anticipate, can't make decisions that are based on unanticipated split-second choices. Um, in other words, a machine can't think ahead in terms of, oh, this vibration means a, a tire is about to pop. How would it know that? It doesn't have that kind of experience. And it also can't feel what the driver's feeling uh, in terms of what he can see, what he can hear, uh, what the vibrations, uh, the way the vehicle is uh, moving down the road. The robot cannot do all of those things that a human being uh, can. And finally, if the robots uh, replace the drivers. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of drivers losing their jobs. Uh, well, this isn't right. 
The trucking industry is the backbone of the supply chain, uh, which drives the American economy. And this would be a reduction of national security. Uh, one programming virus could shut down the entire trucking industry. And we uh, could not uh, recuperate from that very quickly. In an updated report, this is June 7th from Forbes, 2023, the California Assembly uh, passed a bill prohibiting autonomous trucks on the state's roads without drivers. So this was a measure aimed at uh, uh, stopping the uh, driverless 18-wheelers in the state of California for these reasons and, and many other reasons. The uh, Of course, jobs is a big concern, but safety is another immense concern for, of course, the people of California. When you're talking about trucks going down the road, 80,000 pounds uh, moving down the road at 70 miles an hour, you want that to be safe and as safe as possible for the drivers around uh, those roads. So, yeah, let's just wrap up with this. A study from the American Automobile Association in March 2023 found that nearly 70% of Americans fear fully self-driving cars. Another 70% of, uh, in this case, in April 2023, another study, 70% of Texans said they would be afraid to share the road with driverless heavy trucks. And now let's take a look at the bigger picture. In today's program, we had two stories that talked about vehicles. The first story had to do with personal EV cars, and the second had to do with unmanned 18-wheeler trucks driven by computer programs. So on today's final bigger picture segment, I want to discuss an American tradition, the family car, and the American car culture. Well, I've lived in a foreign country where most citizens uh, did not own cars. They traveled on buses to and from work. Uh, if the bus system ceased to function, the entire country would come to a screeching halt. Well, not so in the United States of America. In America, we have no concept of this reality. In the United States, 93% of households own at least one car, according to the Federal Highway Administration. That in contrast to most nations of the world, where less than half of the households own at least one car. In other words, in most of the countries of the world, owning a car is considered a symbol of wealth and prosperity. For example, in Mexico, just below our southern border, our closest southern neighbor, Mexico, there you can find that only 35% of the households, about one-third of the people, own at least one car. In the United States, owning a car, your first car, is a rite of passage. It represents independence, responsibility, and the doorway to adulthood. The driver's license is something that every adult American is assumed to have unless old age, sickness, or some other health-related condition uh, prevents that person from having 
the driver's license. I can remember obtaining my driver's license as a teenager. I can remember my first car and how proud I was to own it. I took care of it. I customized it, had it painted, upgraded the stereo system. Of course, I drove that car during my senior year of high school uh, through my years in college. I felt independent, responsible. I could get a job. I could transport myself to and from the job. I could visit friends and go to musical events. I could drive to school and home. No more carpooling with other students to school. No more fighting over what music to listen to when we're driving to school with other kids. And the best part of owning my own car? Well, I could take a girl out on a date. But that's a subject for another program. And as I discuss my first car, I'm sure many of you have found memories of yours. Some of you owned beaters, but that was okay. It was your beater, and the car represented your independence and responsibility. It was your introduction into adult society, the rite of passage. Americans have always celebrated cars, and so has Hollywood. You can even take a course in road movies at Southwestern University, Department of Communication Studies. Hollywood has produced movies featuring cars such as American Graffiti, 1979, featuring coming-of-age teens. And then there was Oh Brother, 2000, which included a few scenes of fugitives fleeing in a car. Then there was Bonnie and Clyde, 1967, a classic, more fugitives fleeing in cars. And in 2019, there was a remake of Bonnie and Clyde called The Highwayman. Then there was the comedy Rat Race, 2001. It was, again, a comedic road trip with a cash prize as incentive. Then there was the animated children's film Cars in 2006. Green Book came out in 2018, a film about traveling in the segregated South. And Driving Miss Daisy, 1989, an old Jewish woman and her African-American chauffeur in the American South have a relationship and it grows and it improves over the years. And of course, the Back to the Future trilogy. Who can forget that? Three movies, 1985, 1989, 1990. And there were many of you who grew up in the 80s, and this was a part of your early adult experience or even early childhood. Well, that, those movies were, again, about a car, but not just any car. It was a time machine car, and not just any car again, but a DeLorean. Of course, if you're going to travel in a time machine, might as well do it with class. You might make the case that non-Americans could learn a lot about Americans by studying American road movies and even American westerns, which included the prequel to the automobile. Any guess what that was? It was called the horse. Well, and then there was the iron horse, the railroad, the train culture. I'm going to conclude today's program here with a quick story of a recent road trip. 
my family went on vacation out of town and we had to make the obligatory stop for food and gas, what we encountered was an oasis on the highway, a shining star in a sea of mundane, forgettable roadside gas and go establishments. We pulled into our first Bucky's. What we didn't understand until we experienced it is that Bucky's is a destination resort road trip highlight experience. The food was outstanding. Fresh brisket wraps. The store is large. It's clean. The bathrooms are absolutely pristine. The service was outstanding. It's almost a Hobby Lobby meets convenience megastore consumer gas station mega merger experience. Everybody walks out of Bucky's with a few extra things. It's kind of like going to Costco, Sam's Club, or Walmart. Nobody enters and exits making just one purchase. That's just downright un-American. Bucky's is clearly an American original. It's been around for a few decades, and it's a salute an homage to the great American family road trip. Brilliantly, the one I visited was between uh, cities on a major freeway situated where families need to stop, rest, and refuel and use a clean bathroom. If you're wondering why is it called Bucky's, if you haven't been there, well, Bucky is a beaver and the store mascot. And there's plenty of t-shirts and stuffed toys with the trademark image on it. Bucky's is advertised as not a truck stop. It doesn't accommodate 18-wheelers. It's just for families and for vehicles that families use. It's designed to cater to the American family on the American road trip. They also are known for their barbecue sandwiches, Bucky's branded t-shirts and beaver nuggets. According to Southern Living Magazine, there currently have 46 stores total and the self-proclaimed Disney of convenience stores. The Baldwin County, Alabama store is massive with a 53,000 square foot footprint. And folks, no, I'm not getting paid for this by Bucky's. I was just blown away, so I decided to do a bit of research here and look up some of this information. Now, keep in mind that Bucky started in Texas, and of course, Texas is known for doing things in a big way. The publication Texas Monthly notes when they opened a 68,000-square-foot outpost in New Brunsfels, Texas, and this was in 2012, 10,000 people came in to shop on the first day. It's the largest convenience store in the world. Until Bucky's tops itself uh, in the future. Now, Bucky's may or may not be your thing, but I suggest you check it out at least once if you haven't seen one. The chain started in Texas, as we mentioned, and they're expanding around the country. And if we have enough feedback, I'll... Share your thoughts on a future edition of Narrative Wars. America's always been a land of opportunity, freedom, liberty, 
innovative ideas. And that's something that we can celebrate together, even in something as simple as the American car culture. We can celebrate that in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.